Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. God doesn't forget anybody. This week, I talked with Professor John Swinton, the Chair in Divinity and Religious Studies at the University of Aberdeen, and the founder of the university's Center for Spirituality, Health, and Disability. Professor Swinton's research has significantly shaped the field of practical theology, particularly with his work Dementia, Living in the Memories of God, which was awarded the Michael Ramsey Prize for Theological Writing. In this episode, we talk about the theology of memory, God's memory, connecting that to the experience of those whom society often forgets people with dementia, profound intellectual disabilities, and crippling mental illness. One of the ideas that Professor Swinton emphasizes is that practical theology takes into account the needs of different sorts of people, not as some great act of charity, but simply as an act of faithfulness to the call to make disciples of all people. Professor Swinton is as knowledgeable and impressive as he is kind, I found myself pondering our conversation long after it was over. I was encouraged, enriched, and challenged by what Professor Swinton had to share, and I hope you will be as well. Dr. Swinton, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Tell us a bit about, you have, you have done many things in your life. Uh, when we look at your biography, yeah. you have been a pastor, you have been a professor, you have been, what, what is the narrative arc to those things? What led you to write about and be passionate about what you are passionate about? That's a good question. Well, my, my background originally was in uh, nursing. So I, I trained as a, a mental health nurse. And then I retrained as a nurse with people with intellectual disabilities. So I spent 16 years of my life um, nursing with people with different perspectives on, on life and different ways of seeing the world. Um, and then back in the early 90s, I decided to uh, make a change uh, and move from nursing into, um, well, to do a degree at the university. I thought at that time I would end up in hospital chaplaincy. And I did for a little while. Um, uh, so I trained as a, uh, an ordained minister in the Church of Scotland, thinking I'd go into chaplaincy. But then as soon as I started at university, I, I really liked practical theology. And I knew that that was what I wanted to do with the rest of my, uh, my life. And so I, I finished my degree, I finished my PhD, and then I uh, got a job in Glasgow for a while. Uh, and so almost as soon as I got my job in Glasgow University, a job came up in Aberdeen. So I was there for a term. Then I came back to Aberdeen and I've been here forever. Okay. This is my 20, 22nd year or something like that. Um, I told you this for the, the interview, but the reason that I got, I found your work was through actually tutoring for a practical theology. And the way you write about theology, but rooted in the real, what it looks like to minister to people in their experience is, is so, it's very unique. I don't think everyone is able to write in that way. So it's really wonderful to do your research. And, um, I wanted to ask you a bit about your book from, I think it was in 2012, about oh yes, yes about um, dementia and memory and self. And the thing that I love so much about that is you talk a lot about identity and, and memory and how those things interact. 
and you talk about that specifically with dementia, but I think that's a that's something that kind of plagues the modern world is the question of who am I, uh, how do I define myself, and who I am I in community. So could you tell us a bit about um, about what inspired that work and kind of the question of identity and memory? Yeah, well, I mean, really, uh, the uh, the book emerged from was just my experience over the years being with people with dementia and the various mm. is issues that people. Uh, came up with, but in particularly the negative issues, the way that dementia is highly stigmatized because, you know, if you live in a, 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 a kind of culture that really worships intellect and reason, to begin to lose your memory and your intellect and your reason is highly challenging. Mm -hmm. And if you think that that's part of what it means to be a human or fundamental to what it means to be a human, then it becomes even more complicated. Uh, and so I was always struck by two things. One, the kind of language that people use around people with disability, which talked about them as if they weren't there anymore. You know, she's not the person she used to be. I, I prefer to remember that person the way they used to be. Uh, and the way in which within health services, uh, people were very well looked after, but there was always an assumption that there wasn't much you could do. Yeah, that's right. So you would, people would be sitting around and be, be sitting in front of the television, watching mm -hmm. kids' programs for hours and hours and hours. Um, but then, when I, as a chaplain, go into that kind of situation, the uh, you know as soon as you start to do the sacraments, as soon as you start to worship, people come back into the room and they sing and they move mm. and they dance and they do all sorts of things. And it just struck me that actually it may be at least partly our conception of what memory is that's problematic for people with dementia, rather than simply that people have forgotten things, mm. because they haven't forgotten everything that we think they do. Uh, and tied in with that, you begin to get the revelation that, okay, um, people with dementia are stigmatized, they're alienated, they're very often discarded. Uh, and you get your value from other people, so they're often mm -hmm. very devalued. If you don't give, somebody doesn't give you value, you don't have some. And so they are very much a, a, a forgotten people. So everybody thinks about dementia in terms of forgetfulness, but actually people with dementia are forgotten very often by mm -hmm. community. And then beginning to think about that theologically and recognizing that God doesn't forget anybody. Mm -hmm. And that even though we may forget ourselves, it's never ourselves that's central to our identity. Our identity is always found in Christ. It's always found in how God sees us, not in how human beings sees it. And so the book itself, the subtitle is Living in the Memories of God, just simply means that uh, we're not defined by what we uh, remember about ourselves, or even mm. what our communities remember about ourselves, we're defined by who we are in Christ. Mm. I love that, and um, I think that was the thing I was struck by when I was reading it, is that sense of being remembered by God, and I think we could think of that, we could think of that in the sense of, well, if I forget or if my community forgets, but even in that, we're almost placing too much emphasis on our own ability to remember and describe ourselves. You know, I, yeah. I, um, I, re I was reading an essay recently, um, on in Rowan Williams' book on Augustine, where he talks about Augustine's, you know, he has these kind of mind-boggling things about, am I who I remember of myself? But I can't remember things very well. And yet this is, and so that sense of, if who we are is defined on this kind of nebulous ability to remember ourselves or to be remembered by others, then our identity is always insecure. That's right. But to be remembered in God means that we are always secure no matter how remembered or able to remember we are that's right we are and that's right but then the the, the other dimension to that is that 
it's, it's all very well to have that foundational theological belief that we're remembered by God, but you have to feel it. Mm. You know, you have to experience that. So it, it's the task of the Christian community to uh, remind us that we're remembered in that sense. Mm. So although communities can be problematic, one of the tasks of discipleship, one of the things the body of Christ needs to do is to help people feel remembered, remembered. even though they can't remember in that, in that sense. Like, Mm, yeah. So, um, yeah. so what is what do you think that looks like practically um, for communities to remind people that they are remembered? Well, I think that the key thing is to enable a place of belonging for for people with dementia, and I don't mean simply inclusion, like wheeling people into church and wheeling them back out again. Really taking the time to recognise two things: one that for Christians that these people are disciples. Mm -hmm. They don't cease to be disciples because they've forgotten some certain things. They are mm -hmm. disciples who are having a different kind of experience. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, if they're going to have a place of belonging, it's not an act of charity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's an act of faithfulness mm -hmm. to create spaces where everybody within the body of Christ can come together. So I think friendship. Mm -hmm. you know, opening up space in your life to be with people uh, who see the world differently, supporting families who have really difficult times sometimes mm -hmm. with people, both psychologically and physically. Mm -hmm. uh, so creating spaces for respite, allowing the challenge of the presence of people with dementia to shape and form the way we think about worship and mm -hmm. so that we can include people in worshipful ways as well as simply just in terms of their presence. So I think these basic pastoral strategies mm -hmm. that emerge from that kind of theological core are fundamentally important for uh, uh, operationalizing the theology, mm -hmm. if that's the right way of putting it. Yeah, I think that I think this this topic, particularly with dementia, resonated with me because as a as a child, I grew up in very close contact with someone who had Alzheimer's, my mother's best friend um, growing up. She moved back to the States after having lived in Austria for a long time because her mother had Alzheimer's. And I would often play at their house and, and stay there when my mother would be working. And I grew up in a friendship with Larla. And I knew that Larla couldn't remember everything. But there wasn't this sense of, this is a special thing that I do with this very special person. It was That's just, right. she is, she is a part of us and she is a part of our family and she's experiencing the world differently, but she is a person with a soul That's right. and making space, making room, relating to and friendship isn't some kind of um, extra special duty. It's kind of the bare minimum yeah. of just treating people like humans. It's um, what Christians do. It's what Christians do. And I think that relates because you've of course written about this, but you've also written about many other things, you know, even just mental disabilities or I, that was actually what I got to do a lot of your reading on um, in the class that I tutored for. And so, uh, which helps us rethink what it is to be a Christian, because I think a lot of times yeah. we can have in our minds, um, being Christian is believing these certain things or taking it off these boxes or even being able to do or perform these certain things. Uh, but if that is not what being a Christian is, and what do you think being a Christian is? And how does, how do other people's experiences, whether that's with mental disability or dementia, how does that reshape what we think about what it is to be a Christian? Yeah, well, being a Christian is, is being with Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the interesting things that you notice in uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's account of Matthew's call is that, you know, he's walking along, he calls to Matthew, Matthew hears and Matthew responds and follows Jesus. Mm 
Now, Matthew, according to the scripture, didn't know anything about who Jesus was. So it wasn't like a cognitive act in, in the way that we might think about it. Like. And Bonhoeffer says that if you want to uh, think differently, you have to go outside the text. You, you, text. You, have, you can make a historical analysis, you can make a psychological analysis, but the text says, Jesus called, Matthew followed. And likewise, you know, if you look at the lives of the disciples, they were very often confused, cognitively confused, and, and never quite sure who Jesus was, even after the resurrection had the same. So being with Jesus is not simply an intellectual thing. It is an intellectual thing, because we, 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 need, we should get to know Jesus, we understand that, we have scripture, we have tradition, but that's not all it is. And if you're somebody who doesn't have the, uh, uh, the, the, the skills to engage with Jesus in that way, and there are other ways which uh, we can follow Jesus, which are not determined by what we know or how we can articulate ourselves. Mm, yeah, and I think that's um, at the heart of it is withness and presence and relationality. Yeah. That, that was the thing that, you know, clicked, I think, with a lot of my students was, you know, they're all these very clever, very driven St. Andrews students. And I remember one of them who always wrote these very complicated papers and he came to me and he was like, so Christianity is not about my capacity to understand God, but about God's movement towards being with me. And yeah. and I was like, yes, that's, that's right. it. And that's the good news, you know, to not to that's know exactly right. to know that God is with us. And um, and that relates to something else that I liked. I was um, watching a recent talk of yours, which I'll probably put in the show notes, um, where you talked a bit about the idea of the speed that God goes with us, that Jesus came and walked us with us in the world. Could you say a little bit about that idea, the speed that God matches for humans? Yeah, this, it's, uh, it's an idea that comes from a Japanese theologian, Kusaka Kuyama, and he points out that the average speed that a human being walks at is three miles per hour. So Jesus, who is God, walks at three miles per hour. Uh, Jesus, who is God, who is love, walks at three miles per hour. So love has a speed, and it's slow. And in order to love, you need to slow down and take time for those things that the world considers to be trivial and unimportant in that sense. And one of the things when you're with people with profound intellectual disabilities or people with uh, dementia is you need to move into that time frame. You need to slow down and take time for things that people don't always notice. And when you do that, you actually see quite wonderful things sometimes. Mm -hmm. So the idea of the three mile and God is it's like a metaphor of the incarnation, but it's a practical metaphor that helps us to, to see how we can genuinely be present with people with disabilities. I love that idea. And I think also, like you said, when we slow down, we also learn and grow and see beautiful things we wouldn't see if we were going at our That's right. a million mile speed. I always think of that when I'm with my nieces and nephews who, yeah. with kids, they're, it's like they're both at this very fast speed, but also at this very slow speed. <laughs> That's and, right. And, uh, but when I'm with them and I'm jolted out of my adult world, I am able to see and experience a love and an attention to small things that I wouldn't yeah. see when I'm That's right. running at a faster pace. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, well, and I think in funny ways, we've all kind of been adjusted to the speed, to a different speed in this season as we find ourselves in lockdown. And um, and I think that we get too used to a fast speed of the world and it actually limits our, our vision, our ability to see 
what God is doing. I think it us. does. I mean, the, the problem with lockdown is that it certainly slows us down, but it also alienates a lot of people. Yes. So you have a, a completely change, a complete change of gear and speed, but also a complete change of relational environment. Mm -hmm. And that's necessarily very helpful. No. So mental no. health issues in lockdown are, are kind of, you know, exacerbated by the slowness and the lack of structure yeah. and the, so it's, it's, it's complicated yes it is very complicated and um brings about a whole other slew of pastoral practical issues i i'm sure yeah, that you've yeah, been thinking does. about yeah so are you working on anything new lately in theology are there any projects that are on your brain these days yeah i've got, I've got a new book coming out in, uh when is it next month called finding jesus in the storm and it's a, for the past two or three years, I've been having a series of co uh, conversations with people with, with um, severe mental health challenges. Mm. So people who are living with schizophrenia, bipolar yeah. disorder, or major depression. Not to try and uh, work out what causes it or how we can treat it, but to try to understand what it feels like. Mm. What does it feel like to, to experience voices? What does it feel like to have highs and lows in relation to the people's spiritual lives? Mm. And so this book is, is all about how people have articulated to me over time what it feels like and how, 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 what it feels like to encounter God in these, through these different experiences uh, and what kinds of uh, spiritual support are helpful, what kinds of spiritual support are not helpful because sometimes churches can be less than helpful when it comes to mental health issues. And so that's, that's taken up my horizon for the past uh, two or three years. Um, so that's coming out next next year, and then I'm I'm doing the uh, it's called the Didsbury Lectures mm. at the Nazarene Theological College, uh, looking at what does evil do. So mm. that will be interesting. It's wow. exploring a slightly different perspective on what evil is and how we should how we should respond and resist it. Mm. So that hasn't been very cheerful, but it's been interesting. I know. I was going to say that's. Uh, those are light topics indeed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I look very forward, especially to um, reading the book on, when did you say that's coming out, the book on mental illness? and? It's called uh, Finding Jesus in the Storm, and it's mm -hmm. coming out in September. Okay, great, right, and this will be coming out. So something else I wanted to ask you about uh, is kind of, you talked about the way that people come to life in liturgy sometimes. Um, that's, that's something that kind of reawaken something or awaken something that's always there and um and also the role of music so tell us a bit about that yeah i mean it's just over time when people engage in their spiritual practices the uh your body begins to take the shape and the form of your spirituality and paul uh, talks about the idea that you become letters to jesus mm -hmm. At least that's that's the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, which is nice. You can let, in other words, your body has been inscribed with that message of Jesus. So it's, it's just what you do, and you can see that very clearly with, with people with advanced dementia who have you know worshipped for years. Now they can no longer cognate things in the way that they used to do, but their body remembers things. They, they still experience and encounter God, but in different ways. And music is is important for that. Because very often with uh, certain forms of dementia, it's not that you lose the memory, it's that you lose the connections, the neural mm -hmm. connection between your ability to comprehend it and your ability to bring it to mind. Um, and because your brain's plastic, you know, neuroplasticity mm -hmm. means that it's constantly configuring and reconfiguring. 
very often it can re when you, uh, your brain can reconfigure uh, itself. Oliver Sacks is very good. He's got a book called Musicology, and he's got the last chapter on that. He says that the brain can reconfigure itself, and very often it does that by passing the impulses through that these parts of the brain process music, mm. and so you can actually access um, a memory when the music is playing. Mm. And of course, when you hear when you hear uh, music, it brings back emotions and feelings and memories, and so you access not just a memory but a whole experience and stuff. Which is why people are very often happy or sad, depending mm. on what the what the memory is. And um, but that only lasts as long as the music lasts. So as soon as the music stops, the memory fades away. Mm. So the person may still have a, a warm feeling uh, or a, a sad a feeling of sadness, and eventually that'll go. So the key thing there is to <coughs> always be in the moment mm. and to recognise that when that's happening, to be with a person in, in the mm. midst of that, recognising that it's not going to last forever, but it'll last for long enough for something to happen. And so if you combine that with the, Paul says uh, the Holy Spirit, Spirit speaks with groans you can't understand mm. <clears throat> then you can see that actually something deeply spiritual is happening through all of these processes mm. you can reduce it to psychology if you, if you wanted to but you could also reinterpret it theologically yeah that's kind of amazing it almost sounds like music you know as a writer does a lot of literature it almost sounds like music kind of casting this temporary spell this ability to draw us back into its into its yeah. to memories into time and um and that's such a, a beautiful thing and i remember that with my grandparents too the way that a hymn can that's right immediately click back into their memory and they can remember all the words and all of the uh, in a time that they usually couldn't access those things no, yeah that's it. and yeah that's yeah. it it's a great gift that God gives us. I always like to ask people this. Um, are there any works of art that for you are particularly spiritually meaningful? Well, I've, I've always been taken by Matthias Grunewald's painting mm. uh, uh, of the, the crucified Christ and it's mm. part of a, a triptych. Because <laughs> when you see that picture, there's two things that you notice straight away. Uh, well, it's three things, but two things that are significant. The shape of the Jesus' hands in that picture is incredible because they are clasped together in absolute agony as the nails have gone through his, the muscle and tendon. And that's quite unusual for pictures of the crucifixion, which tend to be very placid and, and mm -hmm. Jesus tends to be, but he was in mortal agony. And then, if you look even closer, you can see the pock marks on Jesus' body. It's, it's covered in pock marks. Because it was part of a trip that sat, sat in a, a plague hospice. Um, and so this Grunewald wants to emphasize that God suffers with us and that, God, and that the crucifixion is not something that's romantic, it's something that reflects the pain of the world. But God is always with us in the midst of even the most severe suffering. I just I could watch that painting forever in a kind of a kind of uneasy, dissonant way. Mm. But I always find that very profoundly important because it, it just reminds me of where God is mm -hmm. in the midst of what's sometimes a very dark world. Yes, and that is his, that he enters into our suffering and our evil. Uh, it is, he's, not, right. he's not distant or um, indifferent, but is inside of it. And um, right. that, that Christ's body is a body that has suffered. And, That's right. And that that is what we are part of. And um, I think that 
that is a it's a very meaningful painting to me as well um, because of that because it's a picture of God making himself vulnerable to the world that we are vulnerable to and um, That's right. yeah and and that is such a meaningful thing and it relates to one other thing I wanted to pick up before we uh, kind of bring this to a close which is I remember reading in one of your and one of your bits on um, profound mental disabilities um, the idea that if someone is in the body of Christ and they are and they have Down syndrome that the body of Christ has Down syndrome in it I think we lack the imagination to see that sometimes yeah what marks the body of Christ is diversity not normality hmm. I mean it's the diversity of Paul's image of the body of Christ that is so startling and so countercultural mm-hmm. then and now and so the idea that we have to conform everybody to a certain norm seems to me to be the antithesis of what Paul is trying to say in the midst of the, uh, his imagery on, on the body of Christ. The second thing is, is in relation to, uh, you know, very often people talk about disability in terms of healing, uh, either healing in the present, mm-hmm. that we should you know, transfer, some, transform somebody into some kind of norm, mm-hmm. Or healing in the future that you'll be transformed into some, some kind of norm. But I just I'm almost struck by Tom Wright's uh, writing and uh, surprised by hope when he talks about the resurrection and the resurrection body in, in 1 Corinthians 15. And he he just points out that uh, Paul said our bodies will be um, not replaced but transformed. Mm-hmm. And likewise, when it comes to the New Jerusalem, the, the old Jerusalem will be not replaced but transformed. In other words, there's something of the bodies that we have now that has something kind of eternal significance. Who knows what that means? It will be transformed, but then we'll all be transformed. So it's not like a person with Down syndrome will be suddenly transformed into you or me, or if we consider ourselves to be representative of normality, all of us will be. So that, to me, is a very humbling thing because none of us can point to that within the other that we know will be retained and that we know won't be transformed. So we should really take Paul's uh, call for unity and diversity seriously and not consider one another to be normal or abnormal, but just to recognize that all of us are together and all of us will be transformed. But in this moment, we just simply have to be together uh, and represent that which which we we believe to be true. Uh, Yes, I think that's beautiful and profound. It's something that in our world that really does want a sense of conformity in various ways is a really radical a radical and a loving thing um something something to work on our whole lives um yeah to really be present with people to see them and to allow people to be present to us in all of our um diversity as well thank you so much for joining me on this no thank you for the invitation this has been so lovely and i can't wait for people to listen to this thanks for listening in If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave a rating and review on iTunes and make sure to share it with a friend on social media. And make sure to join me next week for another episode in this series of Good Conversations.